Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Tonight is going to be all about the King James translators. All right, so we're still talking about the making of the King James Bible. And, it, and it's an odd thing to talk about because there's no information about how these people made the Bible. If you, if you go through, I have searched and searched and searched and searched for, for details. What did they do on a daily basis? How did they do it? What was their schedule? How did they come together? How did they meet? How did they, how did they approach a certain text? How did they do these things? And there's not a single document in existence that tells you any of that information. <laughs> but there's like four documents that exist that give you a tiny bit of information. And none of these men intentionally left these documents behind to tell you how they did what they did. They just happened to be found and, and kept and preserved. And so all we have are the rules that they had to go by. And they were given very strict rules which were good and bad, and we'll talk about those. And then a contemporary, a, a colleague of one of the translators wrote a biography of the translator, and in that biography, he told a little, about, a little bit about that translator's work on the translation team. It's, not, it's, just a, it just happened, it's like a chapter in a whole book <laughs> about the work he did on the translation work. And then they, they have found a few of the Bibles that were given to the translators. So remember, what, what, what Bible was the King James Bible based on? The king said, you have to use this Bible. I don't know if I've told you this or not, but I'll give you a chance to answer it anyways. So sometimes I have in my head the notes I've been taking that haven't been taught yet and the stuff that I've already taught you, and so I can, it all kind of blends together. So the Bishop's Bible. So the king said, when you put together the King James Bible, you are to use the bishop's Bible and don't deviate from it and don't change it any more than necessary. And so uh, several bishop's Bibles were printed and given to the King James translators for them to use as their, their reference point. And so the, as they would refer back to the bishop's Bible, they'd make notes in it about ideas they have, changes that need to be made, mistakes they found. You know, the, the issues with the bishop's Bible. And so a few of those, I think two of those have survived out of about out of an estimated 40 
two exist that people can look at and see what the King James translators did. So there's very little information about what they did on a daily basis and how they came to do this work. It, it's, it's one of the greatest accomplishments in the world, and it's one of the most mysterious accomplishments in the world because nobody has any information about it. <laughs> so it's just interesting. And, and that also lets you know these men were not doing this for money. They were not doing it for glory. They were not doing it for fame. Like I said, if you ask 10,000 people anywhere in the world to name one King James translator, I'm not confident that 10,000 people could do it. You'd have to go, that number would have to be bigger. You'd have to break it out to 100,000 or 200,000 before you finally found somebody who could name one King James translator. And even that might not be, might not be big enough of a number. One of the greatest arguments against men referring to the original Greek is that there is no original Greek. I mean, that's a pretty good argument, right? Someone says, well, in the originals, like, <laughs> there is no originals. The only thing that exists in terms of old manuscripts are copies of copies. So there is no original Greek. So you can stop saying that. <laughs> it, it makes no sense. You, you, and when you say that, it just verifies that person doesn't know what they're talking about. You know, sometimes, you know, we, we were witnessing to a Muslim man yesterday and um, he was telling me some things about Islam and he was telling me some things about Christianity. And the more he talked, the more it revealed to me they had no clue what either one of them was. They had no idea what he's talking about. And so sometimes you let people talk and when you listen to what they're saying, you will come to understand you don't have a clue what you're talking about, do you? There's nothing you just said is true of whatever it is you're talking about. And, and that's the case when it comes to the Greek. People talk about this mysterious Greek as though it exists, and it doesn't. And, uh, and so a, a close second to that argument is the overwhelming competence of the King James translators. And, and it, so when you have competence, it means people can depend upon you. You not only have the knowledge, but you will do it. You will follow through. You're, you're someone that people can trust. You know, you show up to church on time. You, you do what's expected of you. If you're involved in a ministry there, you actually are there on time to do what you're supposed to do. People can depend on you. And if you're incompetent, people will just be wondering, you know, so-and-so is supposed to be running this, so-and-so is supposed to be doing that, and they're not here. Again. <laughs> so what do we do? That person is incompetent. And if I were the pastor, that person would be removed and they would sit down and be a church member because you can expect church members to be incompetent. You cannot expect people who are in a position of leadership to be incompetent. You have to trust them. You have to be able to depend upon them. We're dealing with the souls of people. Is that not worth putting your time and effort into? Is that that's not worth showing up on time for? Maybe I just get there when I can get there. Um, Okay, well, when you get here, sit on the back pew and keep your mouth shut because nobody wants to see you or hear from you because you're, you're useless. And as long as people are useless, they are incompetent. Now, anyone can become competent. Everyone has talents. Everyone has abilities. But not everybody is competent. Not everybody is trustworthy. Not everybody. Not, we can't look at everybody and say, man, that, that person, that guy. He will be where he says he's going to be. When he says he's going to be there, you can, you can have confidence. He is competent to do exactly what he said he's going to do. 
And the Bible talks about this a lot. I should have wrote some of these verses down, but it, it, it's not our, we don't even have time for it. But the Bible talks often about depending upon someone who you can't depend on. It's, it's like stubbing your toe. It's like having a broken tooth. It's, it's a painful thing. When you expect somebody's going to be where they said they're going to be and to do what they said they're going to do and they won't be there and won't do what they said they're going to do. And mistakes happen from time to time. That's, that's not, you know, we're, we're dealing with human beings. That's expected. But when every week is a mistake, okay, you're, you're past the realm of mistakes. You're just incompetent. You just can't be depended upon. And that makes you useless in the ministry. We can't depend upon you, so you should sit down and stop trying to participate in ministry or telling people that you do participate in ministry because Jesus Christ expects people to be competent. And when it comes to the King James translators, one of the strongest arguments for this Bible is their overwhelming competence. These were unbelievable men. This was like the greatest collection of of brilliant linguistic minds and Christians the world has ever seen. It's, it's never happened. It, it never happened before, and it has never happened since. And I don't think that you could get it to happen again. I mean, I, you know, if God wants it to happen again, it will happen again. But by the will of man, this is not going to happen again. And what would be the point? What would be the purpose we have, we have the greatest reference point the world has ever seen in the King James Bible. And the entire world at this point speaks English to some extent. So it would not be difficult to get this book into local languages around the world because somebody there speaks both the local language and English and, and Lord willing, will have the competence to be able to translate it and make it work in that local language accurately. Men today who wish to have you believe they have a better understanding of language and the work of translation do not have near the level of competence that one King James translators possessed. Some of the things they say today is we, we have a better understanding of translation work. Well, that's debatable that, you know, whether that's true or not is highly debatable. They say it like it's a fact. Well, You're the only person that believes that's a fact. That is definitely highly debatable. And then secondly, they say we have better tools than the King James translator had. Well, again, that's debatable. What do you mean by tools? What they mean is computers. Well, we, we talked about John Reynolds. They said he was a walking library. So... You can have a computer that you've got to feed information into, or you can have a walking library who knows 15 languages and can translate, and can jump between them like it's nothing. So I don't understand how you have better tools today. Just because you can plug stuff in a computer and it can spit it out doesn't mean... Has anybody here ever used Google Translate? How accurate is it? It's ridiculous. Like you shouldn't even call it Google Translate. You should call it something else because... What comes out is, is so garbled, it makes no sense. And there are very few languages that they've been able to, to, to get that to work in. And so, I don't know what you mean by tools. You need the old documents that you're taking it from in another language, and then you need to get it into the new language. What tools do you need to do that? 
You need a brain who can sit down and accurately put these things together. And if you don't have the brain to sit down and put these things together, you don't have the understanding or the tools. And so what they do is you have these translating groups who go all over the world and they use a computer to translate a book of the Bible. And then they take it out into the community and they have the people in the community read it because they know that what that computer spit out (laughs) is not going to make sense. And so they have to have people in the community read it and then come back and say, what happened here? You need to, this makes no sense. Like it's not even our language or something. I don't know what happened here. You got to fix it. And it's because they're depending on a computer to try and do it for them. Well, in the James translation, you have men who have in-depth understanding of both the English, Greek, Hebrew, Latin, and various other languages and their grammatical structure. That's unbelievably important. That's part of the trouble with the Luganda Bible. We don't need just a Luganda speaker who can take it from English to Luganda. We need someone who knows Luganda grammar, who can make sure that it's structured properly, to make sure that your 95 different tenses are matched and your 100 different noun classes are, are thought about. <laughs> you, you need somebody who knows those things and can put them together properly. Otherwise, It's in Luganda, but it's not grammatically correct. And it doesn't make sense. Could people read it and get the idea? Sure. But would you want a university professor sitting down and reading that type of translation work? He's not going anything to do with it. It it makes no sense. Like, this is the worst grammar. He's like, my children do better grammar than this. Probably not, because nobody knows Luganda grammar. (laughs) It's one of the most abused languages I think I've ever come across. But, but in order to get it accurately into Luganda from English, you've got to know the grammar of both English and Luganda. Well, uh, we're, we're in the next TBI is on how to study the Bible. And the very first class we taught by Brother, Brother Marlin, Pastor, Pastor Marlin, and it's on nouns and verbs and pronouns and <laughs> basic English grammar. Because if you don't, I've heard some... I've heard some Uganda preachers some, some, you know, whose natural language is Luganda preaching from the King James Bible, and they're saying things that aren't true because they just didn't take the time to slow down and understand the English that they were reading. And so they're, they're not lying, they're not misleading you, but as they're preaching, they're saying something that's like, that's not what that said. And the reason they misunderstood it is because it was in English, which is not their natural language, and so they, they didn't quite catch the nuances of the English language. Well, we need people who can do both. Where, did they, where are they? Where do those people exist in, in Uganda? They're, they're very hard to find. And so here you have men who are completely capable of doing that with pen and paper. They don't need a computer. They don't need Google Translate. They can sit down with a Latin a, la, a book in Latin and a book in English, and they can get it from one to the other with no with almost effortlessly for them. I'm not suggesting to get a Luganda Bible. We need that assembly of, 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 that type, of those type of people. But we, knew, we do need people who know English grammar and know Luganda grammar and can go from A to B and, and put it together in a way that, that is proper. It's not good enough to just have it in a different language. It needs to be right. This is God's word. We want to make sure it's right. There were 47... All right, so initially there were 54 translators, 
By the time the, the translation was finished, there was 47. A few of them passed away. A few of them died during the translation process. Uh, and then a few others had other commitments they had to pull away from the translation process to, to go take care of. So seven men ended up not finishing to the end, either because of death or, or prior commitments. Uh, but they did what they could while they were there. Now imagine you have 47 brilliant Christian linguists sitting down together to work on to work on a translation of the Bible. I mean, that is an unbelievable event in human history. If we do not have access to ancient manuscripts, and we do not have the competence to translate complex writings from one language to another, then we need men who are fully capable of doing so. So in in this section, we will look at the men involved, and we'll also look at their qualifications for the translation work. So what I did, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about them as a whole, I picked one from each group, all right? And, and we're going to get, get into these groups, but you had uh, Cambridge, Oxford, and Westminster, all right? Each had two groups of, of translators. Each group, these guys would be split into two groups, and they're given their own text of the Bible. And we're going to talk about who was given what, and, and, and this will make more sense as we go through it. But for now, just know that there are three colleges involved, two groups at each college split into two, working on different texts all at the same time. All right, so we're going to look at the men involved. So what I did was I picked one from each group. So it's about six men that we'll look at. And, and you'll get, it's just a basic biographical sketch. I mean, very scaled down. Now, later, as I told you on my podcast, I'm going to do a more in-depth background on these guys. I've got a couple of books that provide as much information as you can get, but there's not a lot of information on any of them. Now, a few of them were more well-known in their their daily lives, like Lancelot Andrews and and John Reynolds. These guys were highly sought-after preachers, So, so there's a lot more information about them. Some of the other translators had, had no public life, and so there's just very little information about them. Uh, many of the King James translators were not even paid for their work. So this was not an endeavor to make money or for glory or for fame or any of that. Uh, they, they just wanted to help get the Bible, uh, an accurate copy of the Bible in the English language. And so that's what they set out to do, and they did that. So in... By looking at these men and their qualifications, we can then decide if we believe these men were capable of accurate translation work or not. I mean, that seemed like a reasonable thing to do. So the next time a man's standing in the pulpit and says, well, this word in the Greek, I mean, the King James translator's messed up here. Go up to him afterwards and say, "Can can I see your qualifications for you to be able to make such a statement? How did you come to that conclusion? And... 99.999999% of the time, he sat at home with a dictionary, or even worse, he sat at home and read a commentary. And the commentary told him that was the wrong word, so he went and repeated it. He didn't even look it up himself. He doesn't have a clue. He wouldn't know how to look it up if he could. Um, And then the other half of the people are, are sitting at home with a Strong's Concordance, and they're just looking up Greek words 
English words in a Greek dictionary, and then they decide which definition or which word they think would be better. But if their qualifications don't match one of these, just one. I mean, if you have the background that matches just one King James translator, just one, then let's talk. But I can confidently say that 99.9999999% of people who say these things are nowhere near one King James translator, much less 47 of them. So then you're not qualified to make such a statement, which means you're an incompetent fool and you should stop preaching. Stop telling people you're a preacher. Stop telling people you represent God when all you do is mock his word and encourage the congregation not to have faith in his word. Uh, That's my advice. It just won't be heeded. So... So first, let's make a note about the English language at that time. The English language was rapidly spreading the world over. And at that time, when it was at its height, all right, now, when when I say that a language is at its height, it's essentially in its most pure form. it's, It's the best that language can be. That wasn't so necessarily in written form, because as we're going to see, as we go through the editions of the King James Bible that came later, The grammar was perfected. The spelling was perfected. So while your ability to speak the English language and and do so in a very accurate and clear and concise manner was at its height at this time, the grammar, the written grammar still needed a lot of work. And and that took place in the the years to come as the King James Bible was, was, it was updated with spelling and and grammatical punctuation and things like that that it didn't have, and and even that the King James translators were not necessarily allowed to add when they were doing the translation work. And so we'll we'll get to all that later as well. But when when you have the English language at its height, at its best, today people say, well, don't you want to bring it to modern English? No, I don't. Modern English is stupid. It's, it's declining. And, and an ang- a language, the, the quality of a language has, has ups and downs. And at this time, you have a society of people who want, to be, who want to learn to be intelligent. The source of the English language today is England and America, where everybody wants to be stupid and everybody wants to be confused. It's like it's a badge of honor to be as dumb and, and, and confused as you can be. You know, you're considered woke. You're considered to, to you know, you're on the inside. You, you know some things. If, if you will dumb yourself down, um, um, I forget what museum it is. It's a famous museum. I can't, it's, it's, it's slipped my tongue. But they, they published, I don't know if it was a series of essays or if it was part of one of their events at the, at the museum. But they put out this, this work that said that, if you believe in being punctual and if you believe in working hard and you believe in, you know, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, that those were forms of white supremacy and that you're a racist. Yeah, you, if you can explain that to me, then I would love to hear it. If not, then uh, you were as confused as I was at the stupidity. Now, imagine it was the Smithsonian. <laughs> That's who it was, which is imagine... This is supposed to be a prestigious museum. And what they want you to know as black people is that 
if, if you desire to be punctual and you desire to work hard and you desire to be independent and you desire to be free thinking and you, de- you desire to stand on your own two feet, that what, you have, what, what has happened to you is that you have been influenced by white supremacy and racist people have taught you those things. That's the Smithsonian. That's America. That's what they want young people in America to know. And, and that they have five-year-old children in America with white skin coming to school and they force them to apologize for being white. Now, you tell me what a five-year-old child has done in this world that they need to apologize for. Now, what, what America used to call this is racism. But, but now this idea has formed that if you treat white people this way, it's not racism. It's, it's justified. It's okay. Racism is racism. It doesn't matter who you direct it at. And so what these people have become in an effort to fight racism, they have become the racist that everybody hates. So when you tell a five-year-old child you need to apologize for your white supremacy, and you need to stop being on time, and you need to stop working hard, and you stop doing all these things because that's white supremacy. <laughs> no, that's, that's called competence. And any person of any skin color who will approach life in a competent manner will be successful in whatever they do. There won't be anything that will hold them down. You will not find someone of any skin color who is competent anywhere saying, man, this, these people are just holding me down. They hate me because of my skin color. No, they laugh at people who whine and cry about those things while they climb the ladder and, and become successful. So, so you, you, I mean, imagine listening to a 17-year-old girl who thinks the world's going to end in 12 years because of the environment and climate change lecturing your, your government on how they should operate. That is the highest level of incompetence. Like she's barely even, she just graduated high school. You've done nothing in life. Why don't you go get a job and get some experience and grow up a little bit, then come back and talk to me. I'm, I'm sure your ideas will change. When you start having bills and children and, and have a real life outside of social media and the retards who made you famous, uh, life tends to change a lot. You, you, you tend to think about life differently. You tend to become more focused on competence, not fake, made-up ideologies. Right? And so we want people who are competent. That's part of what church is. Okay, we, we're looking for people in church who will be competent because we need more people to serve God. We need more people who, who will take an interest in the lives of other people who will be more focused on other people than themselves and then who will do it diligently and faithfully. If we just wanted somebody to show up, we could hire somebody and they would show up. But it's so different when one of you Takes it, takes it upon yourself, it's, it's, it's wedged deep into your heart that I want to be here and I want to make this church successful and biblical and faithful and right and true and I'm going to do my part here to make sure that that happens. Otherwise, we're just playing games. I don't like games. I'd rather read a book. 
I'd rather study. I'd rather be competent. It's so important. I'm going to do something and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. As a Christian, you're supposed to do it as unto the Lord. I'm not doing it to make Thomas happy. I'm not doing it to make Pastor Keith happy. I'm not doing it to make... I don't care if anybody ever sees the end result of what I did. God will see it. And I'm going to make sure that he's happy with it when I'm finished with it. So if you adopt that idea, at what point could you... Could you be incompetent? And at what point could you fail? If you don't adopt that idea, you and I are not going to get along well. I'll love you. Hope you stay. (laughs) Don't want you to leave. But I have high expectations of you. I have high expectations of myself. So today, where would we find this level of linguistic brilliance and competence? It doesn't exist. I don't doubt there are men alive today who are brilliant in the, in, in the, in the science and the, and the work of linguistics. But are they Christian? Do they love the Word of God? Are they competent? Can they be trusted to do it and to do it with integrity? Because everything today is about a narrative. Even Christians. Christians form a narrative, and they don't, they, whether it's true or not, they, they, they fight for the narrative. News. If you watch anything ever put out by CNN, you are confused. That's their intent. They have a narrative they want to push. And the danger is when you develop the narrative and you make everything fit the narrative, you have to lie to do that. You have to deceive people to do that. You don't want a narrative. You want the truth. You want to be able to say, I know I think this way. I believe this way. But I have seen evidence that is contrary to what I thought. And I, I, need to, I need to step away from what I thought. I need to go look at the evidence and make sure what I thought is true. Otherwise, you're, you're forcing, when it comes to the King James Bible, I am going to teach you some stuff that some of our brethren who are King James only, they might show up with their gun and shoot me. <laughs> Because there are some realities and some truths about the King James Bible that need to be taught and need to be dealt with, but they don't fit the narrative. When I start telling you about the additions of the King James Bible and the changes that were made, oh, you say that in a church in America, in, 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 a, in a King James only church in America, they might take you out back and stone you. There are no changes made to this Bible. Well, there were. But what were they? To what extent? What do I mean by change? These are important details. And you've got to look at them. And you've got to be honest about them. In fact, I looked at several articles on the internet today of people who hate the King James Bible and mock people who like the King James Bible. And the source of their mockery was the dishonesty on the side of, of King James Bible believing Christians. We started this class however many weeks ago talking about intellectual honesty, Right? You've got to be willing to be intellectually honest. That means admitting some things might be true that, though you don't like it, go contrary to what you thought was true. That's hard to do, but it's honest. And it'll stretch you, and it'll help you grow, and it'll make you better, and make you more well-informed. And when you're trying to help that person, they'll, they'll know, I'm dealing with an honest person, I can, I can talk to them. And, and so that just doesn't exist in large abundance today. 
All right, so as we'll see, there's a reason such great confidence has been placed in the King James Bible. Numerous English versions of the Bible have been presented to the Christian world, and they all eventually get tossed to the side, but the King James Bible still reigns supreme. 400 years later, people are still fighting over the King James Bible. There's a reason for that. Other versions come and go, and they all change. They're all edited. They're all made different. Uh, And it's not the same type of change that took place with the King James Bible. They changed. (laughs) It's a different book. If you get a 1960s NIV and a 1980s NIV and a 2000 NIV, they're all completely different. And, And so they have to do that. The King James Bible, it's the same. There were some changes made. We're going to talk about those. But it says the same thing. Every single time. All right? The changes are, are, are superficial. They're grammatical. They're, they're spelling. They're punctuation. It's, it's, those are the types of changes that took place. But they did take place. And, and you've got to be honest about that. All right, so let's look at this quickly. 54 men. The king appointed 54 men. All right. Um, Due to death and prior commitments, we ended up with 47. We talked about that briefly already. Um, 17. So let's do this over here. 17 were at Westminster. 15 were at Cambridge. And 15 were at Oxford. Each group at each college were divided into two companies. In all, there were six distinct companies of translators. Now, they may not have been divided evenly, but there, were, there would be two out of the 15 at Cambridge, two out of the 15 at Oxford, two out of the 17 at Westminster. All right? They were divided into two groups at each location. Now, here were the rules. They had very strict rules to follow. Rule number one, they had to... Uh, use the Bishop's Bible as their foundation. Everybody remembers what the Bishop's Bible was, right? They were to change the Bishop's Bible as little as possible. Now, I tried to sit down and think through some of these rules because we're going to adapt these rules for the work on the Luganda Bible. And we're going to try to make them applicable to the work that will be done on the Luganda Bible. Some of these rules, as I looked at them, I'm like, man, that would make it so hard to, to do the work that you need, to have the freedom to do the work that you needed. But it ended up being a good thing because this was not just some runaway group just making up a new Bible. They were forced into a bit of a box that limited their ability to go wildly out of control. So they had just enough freedom to be able to properly translate the Bible, but enough limitations not to create some monster that had to be fixed later and, and or was no longer usable, like all the other Bibles. All the other Bibles, you had men just starting from scratch. Well, not all of them. William Tyndale basically was the only one who started from scratch and, and created his Bible. Then the ones that came after him, you know, Coverdale and, and the Bishop's Bible and, and the other Bibles that came after Tyndale, they worked off of Tyndale's work, but they, they had no rules. They could just do what they want. What you ended up with was partially accurate, partially inaccurate Bible. Well, with the King James translators, they had enough freedom to do what they needed, 
but they had limitations that didn't allow them to get too far outside the bounds of, of, of a reasonable translation. So it ended up being a blessing, I believe. Um, the only changes they could make is if they could, if they could prove that the, the, the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts or whatever manuscripts they were using, if they could prove that it was in fact erroneous, they were to change it. Otherwise, they were to leave it as much as possible. This also makes sense when it comes to the additions and the changes made later. The men who, who made refinements to the Bible, they were not revisions. They didn't revise it. They just made little refinements that made it better and better and better. They didn't have these limitations. They weren't subject to the king's rules. These men are subject to rules, and it's going to limit what they can do. And so, so it's almost as though these revisions or, or refinements later are necessary. They, they need to be there, and, and we'll see that as we go through. They ended up being a good thing. It's just hard to imagine. You know, we, we like to think... Men got together in 1604 and 1611. They made a Bible. It was perfect and nothing else ever needed to be done to it. And that's not the case. That's just not how it worked out. And so, again, that's just something we have to be honest about and and deal with in an honest fashion. Um, In the end, now the king, the king, I don't know if we talked about it last week. The king complained, if you remember, about the Geneva Bible. He said, it's got all these notes in it. He said, I think it's the worst translation. Well, in the end, the King James Bible ended up being more accurate, with more in line with the Geneva Bible than it did with the Bishop's Bible. (laughs) So the king chose the Bishop's Bible because he thought it was the best. He condemned the Geneva Bible. He said, man, that's that's a terrible Bible. We shouldn't even use it. Well, in the end, the King James Bible was more in line with the Geneva Bible than it was with the Bishop's Bible. So it's just an interesting note. Rule number two. They were to try and keep the spelling with the Bishop's Bible as much as possible. All right, so the, these rules, if you, you can imagine if, you, if you're trying to translate or you're trying to spell a word and you look and you see what, what essentially what Tyndale did in the Bishop's Bible, you know, the Bishop's Bible wasn't completely Tyndale's work because other other works were added on top of what Tyndale's work was the foundation of the Bishop's Bible but we went through a couple of English editions to get to the Bishop's Bible so there were some things added to and taken away from and some changes made and all that but what the translators are supposed to do is look and say does that spelling work and if it does then he's to leave it now if there could be a better way to spell it he, he needs to really think about whether he needs to change that or not before changing it. All right. So, so again, this is, it didn't prevent them from making changes that needed to be made, but it hindered them from just wildly changing it. And, and the next time you pick up a Bible and you think it's a Bishop's Bible, but it's a King James Bible. And you're looking at like, I don't know what word that is. <laughs> That's completely different from the word we had before. And so uh, where you're going to see later, this was corrected if you, if, if you will, or made better is actually a better way to put it. Uh, later when they did, uh, when they made changes to the spelling, the guys who were not subject to the king's rules, they, they changed the spelling and made it, made it more fluid with the English language. And so it ended up, ended up being fixed later. But here they were supposed to look at the Bishop's Bible, 
look at the original or the, the manuscripts that they were working off of, and then they need to determine, do you really need to change the spelling or does the spelling work? If it works, but it's not the greatest, they're to leave it. If it's just wrong, they change it. So that's rule number two. Names were spelled completely wrong. Uh, they, were t- they, they, they were to correct it if they were spelled completely wrong. But if it was accurate or close enough that you, it, was, it was close enough to be correct enough, then they were to leave it. All right. So number three. They were to keep old ecclesiastical words. One example cited in the books that I've read is church versus uh, congregation. All right, so there was an attachment to the word church versus the word congregation. And so the King James translators were told, if you get to a place where you, if you think congregation would be a better word than church, they want you to keep the word church. And so this is where all the people say, well, the the word ecclesia, it's a called out assembly. Well, I mean, if you meet together for lunch, that's a called out assembly. It doesn't mean it's a church. (laughs) People attach to the weirdest things and they don't think about it. They, they go and they repeat it. Number four. When a single word has multiple meanings, they are to refer to the church fathers to see if they, if they talked about the issue. So what they do is if they they have a word that has multiple meanings and and they're not sure which way to go 100%, what the king wanted them to do is is to look at the writings of the church fathers and see if they had anything to say about this. How did they use it? What word did they use? Why did they use it? Did did they give any information? And so um, that would be somewhat limiting, I would believe, because the church fathers... They, they, their writings cover a lot of the Bible, but I don't know that I can say their writings cover the entire Bible. But whatever they had, whatever they had uh, access to, they were to look back and say, you know, what did the church fathers teach about this topic, this idea, this word? How did they use it? How did they understand it? And then they were to make their decision on what word to use or the direction to go from there. Um, number five. One more note about number four. Um, To make sure this was properly kept, to make sure that they did this, they hired the heads of the universities, so it would be Westminster, Oxford, Cambridge, to come through and and read and verify that they were were doing this. So they had had lots of checks and balances in place for all the translators. And so the heads of these universities would come in and read the text that they were translating, and then they would go back and, and make sure that they were making proper reference and explanation as to why they chose that word from the church fathers and, and their various writings. Number five, divisions into chapters should be altered as little as possible. All right, so they, at this point, we already have chapter divisions and verse, verse divisions and, and, and all this. 
And so they wanted them to, let me rewrite that. They wanted them to alter the chapters and the verses as little as possible. That, that is something else that later, as the other editions came out, they, they did alter the chapter. They did alter the verses in, in ways that seemed to flow well and seemed to make more sense. Where you can see where the King James translators were, were somewhat hindered here. You know, they, they were told not to make changes to them, again, unless absolutely necessary. So unless you could prove 100% that it needed to be changed, if you just didn't like it, I don't care, leave it. Or if it could work better another way, leave it. But if it's wrong, change it. All right, so they, they were, this is, in my head, in my mind, this is, these rules are part of the, 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 the justification for the, need, for the needed refinements that came later. Because some of these, when it comes to, to words and word spellings and, and uh, chapter divisions, and then uh, later as, the English, as English grammar became more clear and punctuation became more clear, they had to go back and they had to add these things. You know, like it wasn't until 1769 that they added apostrophes to the King James Bible to show possession. You know, when, when if I say uh, Quinto's Bible, well, the S at the end is going to be O apostrophe S, showing that, that he owns that Bible. It's, he's, it's possessed by him. Well, they didn't have that until 1700s. It didn't exist in English grammar. So they had to go back and add those things, and, and it made more sense. It ended up flowing much better. So while these rules... It's good because you don't want a bunch of intellectuals, brilliant minds getting together and just ripping your Bible apart. But at the same time, you want them to have the freedom necessary to make proper changes, but you also want to restrict their ability to just run away with, with some bad idea. All right, so it, so it, it kept a lot of, it kept proper chains on them. And then later, men could come back and say, I'm not under these rules by the king. I can make this better and and fix some of these things that they were not allowed to fix under the rules that they had. And then the King James, by by the time you get to the 1769 edition, it was printed by Oxford Press. They said, we don't see there, there should ever be a need to update this Bible ever again at that point. They, they said that the 1769 edition was, was the best combination of modern English grammar and spelling, and it did absolutely no harm to, to what the Bible said. And so it was like the perfect blend. And then, and then you know, from there, so we, we, we have our Bible. So, um, all right, number six. Translations notes were not allowed to be used or added. You had to make your own, and they were not allowed to be added to the Bible. This was one of the, it's, it, it, it's unbelievable to me that King James, he despised the Puritans. And it was the Puritans who called this meeting at Hampton Court, who wanted to have this, this, this meeting. And... And so they have this meeting and they have the, the millinery uh, petition where they bring all these petitions before the king. and They want to see all these changes made to the church. And the king says no to every single one of them. 
But translating the Bible was not on the list. John Reynolds just happened to bring it up in conversation. And the king was like, man, I hate the Geneva Bible. And I hate all those notes that they put in, people put in their Bibles. Let's do another translation, and you're just not allowed to put any of your notes in it. And that, that basically was the basis for his deciding to translate a new Bible. Was that he just didn't want notes in it. He hated the Geneva Bible, and the Bishop's Bible had all these notes in it by the translators. He didn't want any of that in there. So let's make a new Bible, and you don't put any of that in there. It was just a... You talk about a slim window that, that only God could have orchestrated and put together. And he used this shallow, stupid excuse by a king to bring about the greatest Bible the world's ever seen. It's incredible. Number seven. So this one, all right, I'm going to tell you what I, what I read there, and, um, and then I'll tell you my notes. So... Number seven pertained to adding marginal notes regarding parallel passages. Now, the information that I have in the books that I was reading and and where I was trying to put all this together, it doesn't clarify what is meant here. So I'm not sure if they wanted them to be added or not. Now, the the 1611 did have marginal notes and it had cross references in it. So it looks like they wanted it, like the king wanted them to be there. The way it's worded, it seems like he does not. But the 1611, I'm going to bring in, I'm going to print a couple of pages of, this, of the original 1611 and bring it in so you can see it and, and see what it actually looked like. Um, you know, but you had the, the page, so say this was Genesis, Genesis 1, right? And then you had the page, it was side by side like this. This is the middle of the page. And so this would be 1, 1, 1, 2, and three and four, and it'd go down, and then here you'd have six and seven and eight. You know, it, it went down to the bottom and then came back up like this. Well, over here, you had these margins, and they had cross references in them. Just a few, not a lot, but you know, some had more than others, but they, they would have cross references there. So uh, it, it looks to me like. They wanted them there, but maybe the king wanted limitations on that. He didn't want them running away with these marginal notes. So the marginal notes have cross-references. And I may have other information there as well, but it just wasn't 100% clear to me what they, what they, were, what they were getting at. It's kind of like, you know, so this is another Bible that I have. So you see in the center, which many of your Bibles may have, it has cross-references. Well, they had that in the margins on the sides so that you can have this kind of thing if you wanted it. So I don't particularly like it. I like just a clean Bible, just the Word of God. But the King James translators didn't consult me. So it has to do with marginal notes. Number eight. Each man in each company was responsible to review every chapter. Now you think about for a moment what that means after you write it down. Each man in every company had to review every chapter. If this company is given, you know, Genesis chapter 1, 
And each of you makes your, your translation of Genesis chapter 1. Well, then you had to pass it around to each other and review it and then come up with a final copy. Well, then you had to take it to the other. Let's say this is Cambridge. You had to take it to the other group at Cambridge and they had to review it. If they accepted it, then it went to every other group for review. If Cambridge did, the other group at Cambridge did not accept it, they sent it back to you. You had to review what they said. If they were correct and you agreed that they were correct, you made the changes. If they were not correct and you could prove to them why they were not correct, you left it the same. If you could not agree, they took the president of all six groups. They had to come together and they had to resolve your argument for you. So that means every single chapter, every single word of the King James Bible was reviewed a minimum, minimum of 14 times. That's if it had no changes, if it did not have to go back through the process again. So at the very minimum, every aspect of your Bible is reviewed by these men 14 times. That's pretty incredible. That's a high level of integrity. That's a high level of checks and balances. And these men were not kind to each other. They didn't say, oh, you just made a little mistake. I mean, they, they, were, <laughs> they were rough. I mean, you've you got a room full of intellectuals and preachers who are all going to hold each other accountable for what comes out. Because it has to be presented to the king. <laughs> and, oh, by the way, God. So they were hard on each other. This wasn't, let's just get together, drink some tea, and, you know, review some chapters. No. Don't you know this word is that, and that word is this, and the grammar says this, and, and I mean, they were hard on each other because this was important. It had to be hammered out, and it had to be right, and it had to be done with these rules on your back. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.